Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. We're currently teaching through the Gospel of John. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. Thank you so much. This is such a long passage, and it's such an amazing passage, isn't it? I mean, is this like one of the coolest parts of the Bible? To read this story and to see how Jesus is interacting with this woman, and you just think... This is my savior. You know, aren't you, you know, you get this sense while you're watching him interact with this woman, you're just thinking like, I know him. Like, this is my God interacting with people. I just love the picture of Jesus here. Um, Let's pray. Father, we have, like the woman said in this passage, um, the well is deep and we have nothing to draw with. As we look at this passage, there's so much that could be said about your son. There's so much that we could see about who you are. And, and yet we have a brief time, and we just pray, Lord, that you would bless it, that you would uh, display your Son as glorious amongst us, and that we would walk away just in awe of who you are. We desperately need to visit with you. We desperately need an interaction with you. Um, we desperately need to feel your presence, and we pray that you do that, even during this time of opening your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, here we are in John 4, and um, we're going to see this morning that Jesus is um, our satisfier, our savior, and our sender. And first, I want to give you a little bit of background here about what's going on. So this is the first year of Jesus' ministry. He had basically three years of ministry, walking around, lots of walking. And here he is walking back from Jerusalem, going to Galilee. It's a three-day walk, and um, and. It says here why he left Jerusalem. He had just talked to Nicodemus and everything. You see it in verse 1. It says, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making disciples, more disciples than John. It's his popularity. It's because of his popularity that Jesus is leaving. And it's because the religious leaders know that he's popular and he's having people come to him. And so Jesus leaves. And you might say, is this fear? Is Jesus concerned about what might happen to him? It's not fear. Okay, we looked before at this, but in John 10, Jesus says, no one takes my life from me. I have authority to lay it down and authority to pick it up again. Jesus is in total control of when he's going to die, and that's why he's leaving. He's actually being very careful to time his own death. Isn't that wild? He spends three years doing his ministry and walking around. The whole time he's thinking, I need to be in 33 AD. I need to be, you know, maybe he's not thinking that, but he's thinking, I need to be in three years. I need to be in Jerusalem. I need them to take me and crucify me. He's thinking all this through. And so he's timing his own death. And so he leaves. But he's got another reason he's leaving. He's leaving because he's got somebody to meet with. He's got an appointment in Samaria. Take a look at verse 4. It says, as he's passing through Samaria, he came to the town of Samaria called Sychar. And it says that he was at Jacob's well. And it says he was wearied from his journey. And he was sitting beside the well. It was the sixth hour. Jesus has somebody he wants to meet with. And the person that Jesus wants to meet with is a person that a Jewish man like himself should be doing everything to avoid. Okay, he should be doing everything to avoid a person like this, and yet he's going straight for her, and he's waiting for her. He's, and this person is a Samaritan woman. And, and, and we have, have a hard time probably understanding how much the Jews at that time hated Samaritans. Because what do you think of when I think say Samaritan? The good one, right? Yeah. So when I go blank Samaritan, you fill in the blank with good. That's not what they would have done then. They would have other words they would have put in the blanks 
Words that we wouldn't say here, and they weren't the word good, okay? And so they had very strong antipathy towards the Samaritans. They were their enemies. And there's a history beside this, as all these things have. Um, there, about, six, uh, about 900 years before Jesus w- lived, the, Israel was divided into two parts. They, they were one nation, they became two nations. There was the northern kingdom and there was the southern kingdom. The capital of the northern kingdom was Samaria. The capital of the southern kingdom was Jerusalem. And what happened while they were split is the Assyrians came and they took over the northern kingdom where, this, where Samaria was and they hauled off all the important Jews, all the people of any distinguishment. They took them into their nation and then they put other people in, foreigners, into that land. That's what they would do. They'd take you out of your land and they'd put somebody in there that they took out of their land and you mix them all up and it's easier to control them. And so they were hauled off. And you had a few Jews remaining. And those few Jews that were remaining ended up intermarrying with the foreigners that were brought in. This was something that you just don't do. Um, so the Samaritans became this, this um, race of people that were both Jewish and Gentile. They were um, the product of marriage between the two of them. Now, the southern kingdom also got raided, except they got raided by the Babylonians. And the Babylonians grabbed all the people in the southern kingdom, and they took them off and left a few people behind. Eventually, after they were in captivity for 70 years, those southern Jews came back, and they came back to Jerusalem, and uh, Cyrus the Great actually allowed them to return, and actually financed the rebuilding of the temple, and um, allowed them to kind of come back. So as these southern Jews are coming in, and they're rebuilding the temple, the Samaritans, which are part Jew, part Gentile, they come down, and they're like, we want to help, we want to be a part of it. What did the Jews do? Get out of here. We don't want to have anything to do with you people, okay? And so... um, They had this strong prejudice against the Samaritans. They return, and so they want to worship God too, right? So what they end up doing is they're like, well, we'll build our own temple, okay? So in Samaria, you have Mount Gerizim. They built a temple. And then you have in Jerusalem, you have this rival temple thing. You have this north-south thing going on, right? And um, and they developed their own um, priesthood. They developed, um, they added some pagan elements because, you know, they had, you know, pagan involvement there. And they also rejected all of the Old Testament except the first four books. And what's funny is the first, uh, first five books. When they took those first five books, they went through, and everywhere they saw mention of Mount Moriah or Jerusalem, they crossed it out and they put Mount Gerizim all the way through. Okay? And so they make their own copy. So the Samaritans were the Jews' enemies at this time, at the time of Jesus. They were the Jews' enemies politically because they were seen as compromisers. They were the Jews' enemies racially because they were seen as kind of half-breeds. They would have said things like that about them. Lots of racism towards them. They were their uh, enemies religiously because they were seen as heretics, which they actually were. Okay, Um, And the Jews were so angry at these Samaritans that they actually um, came up and destroyed that temple they made up there. So at the time of Jesus, when the Samaritan woman's talking about worshiping on the mountain, they would worship at a pile of rubble that used to be their temple because the Jews blew it up. Okay? So these are not people to get along. This is a strong, strong aggression towards each other. And the disciples were like this too. They grew up in this. They had that same racism. They said that same prejudice, prejudice of people of their time. And even later in the ministry, if you look at Luke 9, which is at the end of Jesus' ministry, so this is after three years with Jesus, they're cruising through Samaria, they come to a town, the town doesn't receive Jesus, and do you know what the disciples say? Check this out, Luke 9, and this is James and John, they say, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to consume them? And you think like, this is the option? 
you know? But these are Samaritans. So when they don't receive the gospel and they don't receive the message, they're like, shall we nuke them? And this is after three years with Jesus. And it just says in the text, it's kind of funny. It says, Jesus turned, rebuked them, and they kept walking. You know, it's like, okay, I'm going to leave my ministry with these people, the shall we blow them up people, okay? And on top of all this, this Samaritan he's going to meet with is a woman. And in this time, socially, it was a very sexist time in the ancient world, and this would have been a time where it'd be a waste of time to talk theology with a woman. And yet, this is exactly who Jesus is looking for. And add to that, this is a woman who is beyond morally questionable, right? It says that she has five failed marriages and she's shacking up with some guy. This is the person that Jesus wants to meet with. This is the person he's walked all this way to meet with. And he's sitting by the well, and he, and he sent away his disciples, and he's waiting for her. Notice it's noon. It says the sixth hour. That's actually noon in their culture. And that's because she would come to the well at a time when there wouldn't, the other ladies wouldn't be there. Okay, the other ladies would have come in the morning or the evening, wouldn't come in the middle of the day in the heat, right? Um, she came during that time because of her great shame, and this is exactly the person Jesus wants to meet with, a person that any Jewish religious leader of the time would have despised, maybe use them as a negative example in his sermons, but would never have reached out to. Um, and this is exactly the person Jesus wants. He's like, this is the person I need to add to my family. You know, he's thinking through, and he knows who he can go after, and he goes, she'll be perfect. Like, let's add her to the family. You know, that's the, this is everything, guys, that's beautiful about Jesus' vision for the church. Jesus' vision for the church is to assemble a weird community of natural enemies. Okay, he does this with the apostles too, right? He goes, okay, I'm going to take this tax collector. I know, super shady. I'm going to take a tax collector. This is somebody that would have compromised with the Roman government. Jews would have hated the, their own Jews, the, their own people, their nation that would do this, do this tax collecting. And then he goes, you know what would be fun? I'm going to add a zealot, too, because I know those guys would love a stick and a knife in a guy like Matthew, right? And so he goes, I'm going to add him to the community, too, and I'm going to make this community of natural enemies that will be a family of love together. I'm going to display my power. Isn't that cool? If you look at Ephesians 2, it says that Jesus is our peace and that he makes us all one by breaking down the, the dividing wall of hostility, that he might make in himself one new man in the place of two. That he might make peace, reconciling us both to God in one body through the cross, killing the hostility. Isn't it ironic when we think about our time and stuff like that, that all of us from all our different backgrounds with all of our different you know, natural maybe hostilities or dislikes toward each other are one family and we've been united in the body of a first century Jewish Middle Eastern man. Isn't that amazing? I mean, all of us, we go, that's, that's our God. That's the one that we're united with, so therefore we're all together. And so Jesus is waiting at the well. It actually, literally, it's on the well. So he's sitting on the edge there, and he's just like kicking it, right? He's waiting for her. He knows she's coming. And he's alone. He sent his disciples away. He didn't need them all to go get food. He doesn't want them here. He's like, you guys go. I'll take care of this. <laughs> and he sends them away. He's in the middle of a three-day walk. And what does it say about him? It says he's tired. It says he's thirsty. Which I am right now. It says he's tired. It says he's thirsty. He comes to her vulnerable. And he comes to her, this is wild, asking her for a gift. He's asking her for a favor. Uh, that's very shocking. And she's shocked by it. He says, woman, uh, he says to the woman, give me a drink. And she's shocked. It says in verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me for a drink? I'm a woman of Samaria. 
And then it says, for Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. She's shocked, okay? She is surprised. And part of the reason she's surprised, which you don't see here, is it says that the Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Literally, it says that the Jews and the Samaritans did not use together. It's talking about her jug. The jug of water that she would draw from. He's saying, hey, can I have a sip out of your water bottle? That's what he's doing. Because I know what you guys are thinking. You're thinking well, and you're thinking like a wishing well with like a crank and a bucket, you know. And so she's just going to drop it down, and she's going to like, I don't know, pour it into his mouth or pour it into like his canteen. It's not that way. She says in this, she goes, you don't have anything to draw with. You had to bring your own item. So she's bringing her jug or her bottle, and she's going to lower it and get water, and he's going to drink right out of her water bottle. Okay? Doesn't she love him? Isn't he amazing? Let me ask you this. Do we have Samaritans? Okay, there are Samaritans that still exist. We're not talking about them. Do we have Samaritans? Do we have certain people that we won't get close enough to to share the gospel with them? That we wouldn't be willing to get so into their lives and so intimate with them that we would have a credible testimony to them? I'm not talking about you just walked up to somebody and dropped a track on them. That's fine, too. I'm talking about people that you would get close with. Okay? Are there people that politically you don't like? You know, You don't like Democrats. You don't like Republicans. You don't like this. You don't like that. Or there are certain people racially that you just struggle with. Honestly, you'd never say it. But when you think about certain racial groups, you're like, ah, just, ah. Are there certain religious groups? Okay. Think about it. Let it settle. (laughs) Are there certain religious groups that you think, you know, I just just can't stand these people. You know, I think, well, they're a cult. Well, you know, what are Samaritans? This was a cult, you know? This was uh, a heretical group. Are there different people's lifestyles? Are there people that have certain, quote, lifestyle choices that you just do not want to be near? You wouldn't want to be that close with. Let me give you a simple diagnostic test of who your Samaritans are. Who is it that you would be unwilling to drink from their water bottle? And some of you are like, I'm a germphobe. I won't even drink from my own, you know? You know what I mean. Who will you not drink from their water bottle? Um, we struggle, guys. It's strange. We worship Jesus, and yet we struggle to get near to people that he loved enough to die for. And we struggle to even get near him. How do we change? How do we keep from being this way? How do we keep from getting in the way of this awesome project Jesus has started? I mean, this thing is something he started to, to gather a community of diverse people that are natural enemies. How do we not get in the way of this? And you know how we don't get in the way? We need to see that we're all Samaritans. Okay, because a lot of times we're like, oh, I get it. I'm Jesus in this story. (laughs) No, you're not Jesus in this story. Have you ever heard it taught that way? Like, hey, be Jesus in this story. You're not Jesus. You're the Samaritan woman. Wake up. Okay, wake up. We are the Samaritan woman. Politically, we have rebelled against God's kingdom. You want to talk about bad political decisions. Okay, religiously, we bring to God all kinds of idolatrous beliefs and practices, don't we? Even now, I mean, even people that have read the Bible for a long time, it's bizarre the things we think of. Our practices and our beliefs are idolatrous. Want to talk shady backgrounds? There's some shady backgrounds here, okay? We think about our families and where we've come from. Um, Loose morals, we got that too. Guys, like the Samaritan woman, we are the last people that Jesus should want to come near. And yet this morning, he's here for you. He was waiting here for you. Um, as you arrived, he was sitting by the well waiting. He's got something to tell you. Now, what follows here with the Samaritan woman is a very confusing conversation. 
okay? As you read it, you realize, like, if you can even call it a conversation. Have you guys ever heard of switch tracking before? Okay, I was listening to this podcast, NPR podcast, called The Hidden Brain. It's nerdy. I like it. Um, <laughs> people say it's boring. I like the boring ones. Um, there was this uh, episode on switch tracking, and the idea is switch tracking is when two people are having one conversation, but it's not one conversation. They're having two conversations in one. Have you guys ever heard of that? Okay. Um, they gave this example of a husband and wife, and the husband comes home, brings flowers to his wife, thinks he's doing a really good thing, and she's like, uh, thanks, but I told you I don't really like this kind of flowers. And then he says, um, you could have said that nicer. Okay, what are they doing? They're about to have two different conversations. She's going to have this conversation about, you know, I've told you a bunch of times what I like, and you just don't listen, and I wish you would. Like, that's one conversation. And his is, hey, I try to do nice things for you, and you don't appreciate stuff. Okay, and they're going to continue to have these separate conversations. They're going to get further apart and angrier. <laughs> have you guys ever heard of switch tracking? <laughs> okay, good. I thought you might have. You look confused in the beginning when I explained it. You were like, oh, yeah. They're having two conversations. The difference here is that Jesus knows the conversation is different, and he's guiding her. He's guiding her into two things he wants to show her. You can see them in verse 10. Jesus answers, if you knew, one, the gift of God, and two, who it is who's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. He's like, you're the one that needs the favor, and if you only knew what the gift was and who I am, you'd be asking me. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at what is the gift and who is Jesus. Firstly, what is the gift? I love the way Jesus starts with her here. He starts with her thirst, doesn't he? He starts with her thirst. And you could just say, like, what does he mean by thirst? We know he's speaking spiritually. We know she's not getting it. What's this thirst thing? Take a look at Jeremiah 2. If you guys have a Bible there, it'd be really worth looking at Jeremiah 2. It's an awesome passage. Jeremiah 2, 12 through 13. The prophet Jeremiah says to the idolatrous people of God, he says, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate. This is 2.12. Declares the Lord. And listen to this. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and they have hewned out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. It's a really cool image that God uses here. And the image is, is that God is this fountain of living water in the desert. So imagine the whole world is a desert like sand dunes. whole uh, world is a desert of sand. And in the middle is this fountain of living water. And it's bubbling over, refreshing, and all these things, right? If you need a bottle of water, we got them back there. Um, but there's this refreshing fountain in the water. And what happened is, is that we, by sin have rejected the fountain of living water, and we've gone out into the desert to look for other ways to satisfy our thirst. And he says we've hewned out cisterns. Cisterns would be these stone things that collect rainwater. So it wouldn't be nearly as good as living water, but collect rainwater. And what's the problem with them? They're broken, right? They leak. So we're going after things that don't even have water in them. And that leaves us without water and insatiable thirst. Guys, the life lived apart from God is a life of perpetual spiritual thirst. Because he's designed us to fulfill our thirst in him. We have real needs. We have needs for things like approval and hope and peace and happiness and pleasure and all these things. They're real needs. Security. They're real needs. But what we've done is because we don't seek those in God, we've looked for them in created things, right? We look for them in the creation. We, you know, sometimes try and take care of those needs through alcohol, um, through drugs, um, through entertainment, I mean, we have very entertainment, I'm not against entertainment, um, I love to be entertained, um, but we have a very entertainment-centered culture, 
Um, sometimes we numb it that way. Sometimes it's with sports. You know I have no sports gene. I'm not <laughs> condemning sports. I don't know anything about it. Um, career. Sometimes we, we put all of our stuff in career. We're going to find our hope and our security and our joy and all that in our career. Sometimes we look for it like she did in sexual immorality, uh, sex outside of marriage, sometimes in relationships, even good things. You know, we look for things from our spouses and from our kids that really only God can give us. And we make them miserable in the process, right? We make them miserable in the process. Maybe it's through buying things. I like to buy things. There's a certain, like, hit of something that happens when I make a purchase, especially big purchases. I don't have small things I want. You know, what do you want for Christmas? They're all very expensive. Um, You know, George Carlin, the comedian, said that consumption is our national pastime. He goes, it's not baseball. It's consumption. And listen to what he says, George Carlin. This is where you go for this kind of stuff. He says, trying to be happy by accumulating possessions is like trying to satisfy your hunger by taping sandwiches all over your body. (laughs) Right? It doesn't satisfy it. And, And these things don't satisfy us because they don't meet that inner need, right? They never really get down into the soul and satisfy. They don't. They can't. Only God can satisfy. Guys, our thirst is really for God whether we know it or not. And a lot don't know it. Whether we know it or not, our thirst is really for God. And we've forsaken this fountain of living water. And so we're out in the desert basically filling our mouths with sand. You know, trying to satisfy that thirst. We feel something we don't know what to do. How is this woman doing it? From the little bit we know about her. Jesus points it out, right? Verse 16. Awesome. Verse 16. Go call your husband and have him come here. He knows, right? And she says, the woman says, I have no husband. Jesus says, you're right, I have no husband. You've had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you've said is true. And then she says, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. (laughs) Jesus brings up the symptom of her thirst. Her five failed marriages, her uh, her current sexual sin is all pointing towards this thirst she has. And guys, I used to assume that, like, all these marriages were her fault. Okay, I thought, you know, maybe she's marrying rich guys and ditching them and getting new ones. Okay, this was the first century, not the 21st century. Women didn't have that kind of control over their lives. Now, probably these had to be partly her fault. I mean, there's five of them. But uh, we can know for sure that what's in her control is what she's doing right now. So is she shacking up with somebody? Um, There's somebody that she's, you know, having sex with outside of marriage. But guys, we have to think about her situation, too. I think some compassion is due this woman. If you look at her life, she's just trying to survive, okay? In that culture, you had five marriages. You're not the most eligible woman in town, okay? And she's trying to do what she can to survive. I'm not, you know, I'm not uh, kind of excusing her sin. But guys, that's the way the life lived apart from God is. People are just trying to find something, anything, that will make life bearable, right? Right? I mean, you know what that's like. You know what it's like to have just like an inner sadness, an inner emptiness, and you're just trying to find some way to numb it. I mean, us as Christians, right? It happens. You just want one more drink. You just need one more hit. You just want one more bite of something. You just want one more purchase. You just need one more look at porn. You just need one more person to say something nice about you or notice you or compliment you. Just to fill an emptiness that's inside of you. That's what he's talking about here. Finding something that will just dull the pain of existing. You ever feel the pain of existing? Just want to dull it. 
So when we look outside and we look at those who are like the Samaritan woman, a lot of compassion is due because sin is something you use, but sin is something that uses you too. And so in sin, we're always a victim and a victimizer. We're both, you know, we're both. And so, um, and I would think about it this way. What if, guys, you were so thirsty, but you had some sort of mental thing where you'd forgotten there's a thing called water? What would you do? You'd have this feeling of emptiness, right? And you'd just try and put things in. That's what sin is. We're just putting, we're just heaping sand into our mouths and our life lived apart from God. And, and the sad thing is, is that most people think that the problem is they just haven't got enough of it yet. You know, I just, you know, I, I'm not happy yet. I just need a little more. I just need a little more money. I just need a, a, a better relationship. I just need a better job. I just need to get a little skinnier. I just need to be a little bigger. I need to be a little stronger. There's just something. I need a something more. You know what Jim Carrey says? This is comedian hour, I guess. Um, Jim Carrey says, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed so they will know it's not the answer. How's that for a quote? So that they all know it's not the answer. And so here's Jesus, and he meets us at our broken cistern full of sand. Our mouths are all gritty from trying to heap in other things. And this is what he says, verse 13. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never thirst again. Never thirst again. I was thinking about this week, and I'm like, is that overstated? Never thirst again? I'm like, really? You know, I mean, don't we as Christians still feel an inner thirst? Don't we as Christians still, aren't we still tempted to satisfy our things with things outside of God? Don't we all still have these cravings that we don't want? We do, right? So what's Jesus talking about? Because he's not overstating it. Look at the context. Look at verse 14. It says, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This is weird water, okay? This is a cup of water that you take into you and it, and it transmutes into a spring or a well. So it's water that becomes a spring. So you drink it once and then a spring is in you. Not well, it's a different kind of water, right? Jesus, what's Jesus saying here? He's saying, inside of you, I'm going to give you the spring. What is he doing? He's returning to us the fountain of living water. You know that fountain we rejected? He returns it to us and he doesn't put it outside of it. He puts it right in us. And if you look at chapter 7, Jesus says something more about it. He says, if anyone thirsts, this is 7.37, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in him, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then it says, now he said this about the spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. Guys, this fountain that he puts in us, this living water that becomes a fountain, is a person. It's the Holy Spirit. And, and, and we will never, because the Holy Spirit is in us, and we can receive joy and peace and security and all those things directly from the Holy Spirit as we commune with God, we will never, ever have to be driven by sinful desire. We will never have to seek satisfaction out in the world amongst the sand. Can we? We can, but we never have to. Isn't that cool? And so um, discipleship, then, is learning how to satisfy our inner cravings by drawing our refreshment from the Holy Spirit he's caused to dwell in us. That's what the game is. That's what, how we learn to actually grow in Christ. Discipleship is about learning how to satisfy all of our inner cravings by drawing our refreshment from the Holy Spirit whom he's put in us. Um, this week, as uh, many of you know, we lost a very great man um, in our church, uh, Clint Albaugh. He was... Um, 
around 70 years old, and a lot of you are very, very close with him. And um, he, ha- he got West Nile like over a year ago. And the West Nile thing you know, went away, but then he had permanent damage from it. He was on a ventilator for a year. He hadn't been able to get up for over a year. And uh, you, you'd go to him, and it was just like amazing to be with him, even in that state. But um, Casey was actually telling me, he was, he was like, you know, I keep thinking of Galatians 2.20, because that was something Clint brought up all the time. All the time, Clint would bring up this verse. I've been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And I was thinking back to the first time I ever went to his house, because I meet this guy, and I'm like, this guy has something. You know, you, know, you meet that older guy that knows the Lord, you know, he's... And you go, I, I, need to, I need to get whatever I can from him. You know, like he has something I need. And I kept inviting him, like, let's go to breakfast, let's go to breakfast. And, you know, I was like, you know, let's go to bagel shop or whatever. And he's Hawaiian. He's like, bro, just come to my house. We don't need to go out to get food. Come to my house. I will feed you. Okay. And so I went there, and I show up, and he's cooking. It's this huge breakfast, right, on this table out by the pool outside. And he's like, please sit here. And so I sit here, and, and then he, he grabs my hand to pray. People don't normally do that. So he grabs my hand, he's like, bro, let's pray. And I had the most amazing conversation that morning with him about the things of the Lord and just the presence of God in his life. is just amazing. And, and since then, you know, for years, just every time I'm with him and stuff. When I went over to his house, I felt like I just met with, like, the Apostle John you know, or I went to Isaiah's house, you know, it was crazy, and I just think to myself, what kind of seven-year-old do I want to be? I know what kind of seven-year-old I want to be. I want to be a seven-year-old like Clint Albao, you know, I want to have that life, I want to have that um, experience with God, you know, what was the deal with Clint? Guys, over the years, Clint had learned to satisfy his thirst from the fountain of God and not from the sand of the world, but see, guys, he had learned to do that, Okay? It's not like when he got saved, and he would tell you this, not like when he got saved, all of a sudden it was, everything was perfect, right? And it wasn't that he was perfect even you know, before he left us. But he had learned how to satisfy his thirst from the fountain God instead of from the sand of this world. And you can learn how to do that too. Like People like him are there for us to know that it's possible. He would be the first to tell you how much of a sinner he is, and, you know, his background and his current struggles, and he would always talking about the flesh this and the flesh that, you know. So there's obviously an inner wrestling, but, but he had learned this. And that's what being a disciple of Jesus is about. It's about learning how to draw your refreshment from the Spirit and not from the sand of the world. That's what it's at at the core. Let's go back to this conversation here, and we'll finish this up. Go back to the conversation here with, with Jesus and the Samaritan woman. He had just gotten a little too into her business, didn't he? When he said, call your husband, and she goes, I don't have a husband. You think you're in there, and he's like, he's like, actually, you know, I know you've had the five husbands, the one you're with husband, not your husband. You guys ever seen Sherlock Holmes? It's that kind of a thing, you know? It's just like, boom, 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 and you're like, whoa, okay. He has this spiritual knowledge, right? He has, he has knowledge only God can have. And so they have this conversation, and what does she do? She goes, oh, I perceive you're a prophet, you know? And then she goes, let's talk about something else. I have a religion question. How convenient. Which mountain should we worship on? That's more comfortable, you know? Because, like, what does she really care? And then, and then they talk, and Jesus answers the question. Verse 25, she says, well, you know, to kind of probably get rid of him. Well, I know that when the Messiah comes, he'll explain all this. And then what does he say? Love this. Jesus looks right in her eyes and says, I, who am speaking to you, am he. And she's like, ah! 
<laughs> right? That's the second thing she needed to know. She needed to know who Jesus is. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is that Savior King that, that we and she had been waiting for. Jesus is the one who has come down to meet with us. He didn't just take a three-day walk, right? He is God who's come in the flesh. He's come to meet us at the well. And not only has he come to drink from our cup, he's willing to do that. He's come to drink from our cup. He has been willing to take the cup of God's wrath away from us. Because there's a cup of God's wrath, right? Which, because of our sin, we would have to drink. And Jesus comes and he goes, you know what? I will drink it. On the cross, he became our substitute. On the cross, Jesus Christ paid the price of separation that we deserved for all of our idolatry and for all of our wanderings and for all of our seeking joy out of the places. Do you remember what Jesus said on the cross? He said seven different things we have recorded. But one of the things he said is, I thirst. On the cross, before he died, he said, I am so unbearably thirsty. What is that? On the cross, Jesus Christ was experiencing the ultimate thirst, the ultimate separation from God, so that you will never have to be thirsty again. Isn't that good? On the cross, Jesus Christ was doing that for us. Jesus died and rose again so that he could implant in you, in your carcass, okay, in your body, that he could implant in you a well of his spirit so that you'll never have to be thirsty again. That well of communication with him and connection with him that is a foretaste, just an appetizer of the world to come when we'll have ever-increasing joy there. It's what Clint's doing right now. He's experiencing ever-increasing joy in the presence of God. And we'll join him. We'll have resurrected bodies. Clint was a very active man. He was a guy that, you know, was always out in his yard. And because you think, oh, you know, when I tell people the story of West Nile, oh, how old was he? I'm like 70. And they're like, oh, yeah, well, he was old. No, Clint was not old, you know. <laughs> Clint was like out in his field, cutting down trees. He had like an Armageddon pile of wood, <laughs> chopped wood. He had chopped wood to last forever, you know. It was ridiculous. And he was always working his yard and stuff like that. Probably got it while he was out there. He's going to have a resurrected body. You know, and we talked about that a lot over the last year, that like his body will be made new. He will be up and moving and chopping wood again, if that's his delight, uh, in the world to come. How do we respond to this, guys? How do we respond to this? How do we respond to this truth? How do we respond to this gift in this person? Take a look at verse 10 again. Jesus said, if you knew the gift of God, which we talked about, and who I am, you'd be asking me for a drink and I'd give you living water. Well, how do we respond? Guys, it's a gift. It's a gift, people. You take it, okay? You ask for it. He said, if you'd ask, you can have it. That's what it's like. It's not religion where, hey, here's, you know, 15 steps, and I hope you make it. It's you ask. If you would ask, you would have it. And then how do we respond after that? We tell others. As we, we live in a desert. You guys realize that, right? We live in a desert out here, okay? And it's even worse because of the drought. If you look at aerial photos, it's like, we're not going anywhere good, okay? Mm -hmm. But we live in a desert, but spiritually, guys, the drought is worse, okay? Spiritually, we live in this vast desert of thirsty people, and they're all cramming mouthfuls of sand in their mouths all day long. That's our, that's our spiritual environment. And guys, you have found the fountain of living water. We should tell the others. Shouldn't we? We should tell the others. The disciples, guys, in this passage, though, are not good examples of that. You see that? Verse 27, they come back and they're like, what's he doing with her? 
Like, hello, ministry opportunity. No. He's like, what's he talking to her for? That's in verse 27. And then verse 31 is even better because he's, they're like, come on, eat something. Okay? So here he is, and he's got this opportunity to share the gospel with the new community. And all they can say is, Rabbi, eat. And he's like, oh, and did anybody give him food? They're like, Jesus, have a sandwich. And he's like, I don't want a sandwich. He's like, no, 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 no. You need to eat. You need to eat. Right? They're hilarious. And Jesus says to him, basically, like, stop it with the sandwiches. Look at verse 35. Do you not say that there are four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see. The fields are white for harvest. He's like, you should look. Look at where you're at, you know. Lift up your eyes. Does that relate to us today, 21st century? Does it relate to us? <laughs> Lift up your eyes, you know. Lift up your eyes and see the field. Meanwhile, the Samaritan woman is the perfect example, which is wild. So she drops her jar runs into town, and it says in verse 28, it says that she went into town and she says, come and see a man that told me everything I ever did. Can this be the Christ? She's not even sure, right? But she's telling exactly what she knows. And they all came out of town. There's this flood of Samaritans, right? There's this, the disciples would have missed the biggest evangelism opportunity they'd ever have because they weren't looking. And, And I know when I bring up evangelism, it's easy for people to feel guilty and then come the defenses like, I'm not ready for that. You know, like, maybe it's, I don't know enough yet. Or, you know, have you seen my life? I'm not straightened out yet. Let's do that first. But look at her. What does she know? She knows the little teeny bit Jesus told her, and she's not even sure about it when she says, can this be the Christ? It's got actually a little bit of a negative. Like, this can't be the Christ, can it? Like, what kind of evangelism is that? Come and see them. So she just says what she knows. And then her life, her life's not cleaned up. Just that day, she was there at noon because everybody's just like, that girl's nasty. And here she is in town, and she's sharing Jesus. Share what you know. Share what he's done in your life, even if you're not a completed work, which none of us are. Why does the town even listen? You wonder about that? Like, what credibility does this woman have? Zero. Why do they listen? It's the power of God. It's the power of God. Guys, the gospel message is a seed. And he talks in here about how we sow the seed and others harvest um, we're going we're gonna to sow seed. We're going to harvest seed. Sometimes it's a lot of sowing. Sometimes it's a lot of really weird, long, drawn-out, confusing s- switch-track conversations with people. Have you had that? You're like, this is going nowhere. Hey, God works through that. Just give them the gospel. Trust in the power of God. Look at verse 36. The sower and the reaper rejoice together. Jesus does not want you to miss out on the happiness of being on mission with him. That's where he's at. If you're like, oh, I'm having trouble. You know, I'm a believer, but I'm not really feeling, you know, a closeness with the Lord. Like, you know what he's doing? He's on mission. And if we go out with him, we're going to experience him in all kinds of new ways. He's like, come to work with me. Let's do this. You want to feel alive? Share Christ with people. Guys, we have an awesome opportunity here in Menifee as a community. An awesome opportunity um, to complete and continue what Jesus did in Samaria. To, to gather a diverse community of natural enemies, right? To get into the lives of people we naturally would not want to have anything to do with. People that we naturally would never want to drink out of their water bottle, right? And yet Jesus draws us in and his love flows through us such that we want to get involved in their lives. Does that sound good to you? Amen. This thing that we have together, this opportunity that we have together to do this, to continue what Jesus did as he works through us, does it sound good? Amen. This sounds good. I don't have anything else we're doing that's, that this, that's this important, right? 
Um, I'll just end on this. Once the, there was a philosopher, um, Dallas Willard. He was a USC philosopher, and he, um, he actually was the head of the philosophy department, but a believer. And one time somebody asked him, hey, Dallas, or Dr. Willard, why do you follow Jesus? You know what his response was? Who else did you have in mind? That's a great question. There's no response. All you can say is like, uh, myself? You know, but you don't really have another person to put it there, right? Who else do you have in mind? Who's better? Who's got a better mission? This is so good. Let's pray. Father, we just uh, are so thankful, Lord, that you're the best. I mean, we just think about who you are in the person of your son, the way you treated people, the way you loved them. Way better than we ever have. We just pray, Lord, that you give us your love for people. And uh, we thank you, too, that you've created a community for us. I mean, there's a, there's a million reasons we can come up with to not put our effort into this community, this church, but Lord, you've given us such a, such a great mission, and uh, you've provided us such a great example, and you've given your spirit to us to accomplish these things, and you've given us the gospel message, which is a seed that has power. And we just pray, Lord, that we would sow and reap with joy as this passage says, that we just have a great time being on mission with you, that we'd have a great time loving people that in our own selfishness we never would have before. And we thank you for this. I thank you for these people that love you, can see on their faces when I'm talking about these things, that they're all in. I just thank you for that. What a miracle that you've done that with us, that you would seek such as us. We thank you, Jesus, and amen. You've been listening to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church, Menifee. If you would like to know more about the Menifee campus, visit us online at covgrace.org slash Menifee.